Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Miles Greenberg. Born in Montreal, he is a New York-based performance artist and sculptor. His work consists of large-scale, sensorially immersive and often site-specific environments revolving around the physical body and space. These installations are activated with often extreme durational performances that invoke the body of sculptural material. These performances are then captured in real time before the audience to generate later video works and sculptures. At age 17, Miles left formal education, launching himself into four years of independent research on movement and architecture, which spanned a number of residencies in Paris, Northern Italy, Beijing, and New York. Miles has worked under the mentorship of Edward Locke, Robert Wilson, and Marina Abramovich, and has since exhibited extensively internationally. He has been featured in Document Journal, Cultured Magazine, The New York Times, Art in America, and Hype Beast, to name only a few. In the fall of 2020, Miles staged an elaborate live installation titled Late October, which involved seven performers, including himself, blinded by white contact lenses, nude and lacquered, revolved slowly above an ice blue basin for seven consecutive hours. Please visit Miles' website for more details about this body of work. Enjoy this episode featuring Miles Greenberg. Miles, thank you for joining me on my podcast. I'm delighted to feature you. Thank you so much for having me. So when did you discover your artistic passion? The arts have always been totally ubiquitous in my life, and I I really owe that to my mother. She exposed me very, very young to all forms of art. I remember as a child, my, my earliest memories were being on a tour bus with her theater troupe. She was an actress at the time doing this sort of absurdist Russian theater. And so I uh, was traveling around with them in Edinburgh and around France and just Europe, handing out flyers <laughs> on the street. So yeah, by the time I was, I think around six or so, uh, we moved back to Canada and I started school. She essentially made sure that I never missed a Venice Biennial in my lifetime, which is quite a a privilege and an education unto itself. So regarding your education, when did you decide to leave formal education? I was, I believe, 16 or 17. I started what's called CIGEP, which is sort of the equivalent of grade 12 for Quebec. And after four weeks of that, I decided to leave. It didn't really feel like the right place or the right pace for me. And I was also already kind of 
dipping my toes into like university level education with like AP programs and like from grade nine on. So it was a, it was a pretty quick decision. Uh, I'm grateful to have been sort of supported through it. And I always told myself, you know, I, I would make it to 21, just sort of doing my thing. And then at that point I would go back to school if and when it made sense and have to say it hasn't quite made sense yet. <laughs> How would you define your practice? I do performance, I do videos, and I do sculptures. I make durational sort of performance installations that last between on average seven to 12 or 24 hours, you know, or multiple days, non-consecutively in order to solicit a physiological kind of response in the audience that heightens their sort of sensitivities to themselves in the world, essentially. I try to kind of stretch out an emotional or physical response in the body, like something like a panic attack or an orgasm or a, a state of ecstasy into that something that doesn't typically last or sustain very long in, in the human body for various reasons, you know, into a macro scale into like seven hours, you know, what happens after seven hours of pain, what happens after seven hours of ecstasy, nobody really knows. So my work really centers around digging into those physiological experiences and interpreting them in a way that allows the audience to also sort of interpret their own bodies differently. It's a lot about sort of a, a really extreme kind of sensualism. And then I translate that into like immersive kind of videos and sculptures and installations that play with architecture in a way that makes the viewer's body change. Your performances, they're so long. And I mean, to stand there for hours, I mean, I understand how you can shut your body down, but you can't shut your mind down. I mean, you you have to keep thinking for, for that duration. I mean, that must be so challenging. Oh, you know, I, I, I actually disagree. You can't shut your body down. You know, that's, that's the other thing is that your body is also constantly, even if you're just standing or even just sitting, I mean, sitting is the worst. It takes so many muscles to sit. It takes so many muscles to stand and maintain our balance and maintain our, our sort of structural integrity. So you don't just slump over and crush your organs, you know, or, 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 or poke yourself with your own ribs. You know, it's, it's, uh, even in stillness, there's so many technicalities and there are just as many technicalities in, in sort of not doing anything with your mind either. So it's, it's never really about shutting down. It's sort of about going deeper and deeper and deeper into the now as much and as often as you can. Of course, it's easy to sort of waver, uh, in and out and natural, you know, but I, I want to sort of register those, those kind of natural ins and outs of consciousness and presence and make legible all the, all the particularities of using a human being as a sculptural material. In essence, you know, I, I don't want to pretend like the body is perfect. I'm always very curious about the shape that I'll be in by the end of 24 hours, by the end of eight days, by the end of whatever, it's going to change shapes. Marble and stone change shapes over the course of 600 years. The human body changes shapes over the courses of, you know, over the course of a couple of hours. And I think that's, that's natural and should be welcomed. Yeah. I think, you know, duration started in my practice as sort of a question of accessibility. I, I wanted people unlike in sort of in traditional theater to be able to see my work 
you know, at 9 a.m. or at 5 p.m. or sort of whenever they wanted and for however, however long they wanted. I, I'm not big on like prescribed times and points of view. So it was always sort of counterintuitive to me to dictate that to my audience. I wanted to allow for as much agency as possible. So it really started like that. It really started like thinking of how I like to see art, which is uh, walking through the, you know, the marble halls at the Louvre or at the Met or whatever, you know, being able to sort of grab a piece of pizza, look at something casually for 10 minutes, come back, talk to a friend, take a photo with my phone, sort of do whatever, or sit there and meditate. Absolutely. You know, but, but to sort of obligate the audience to do it in a certain kind of way is a very, I think, frankly, very Eurocentric, just against my nature kind of way of thinking. So I, I, I was always sort of drawn to it as like a, as a means of allowing people to consume the work in their own way. And as they, as they need to, to fulfill their needs. If I'm aligning myself with this idea of therapy, of this idea of sort of catharsis or like emotional sensibilizing, you know, I think what's, what's really key to that is allowing people to be themselves as well. And uh, and then over time, I began to say, well, you know, what's really also interesting about it for me is that I'm going through all these transformations as well. Over seven hours, of course, you're going to be a different person after a really intense physical experience of that amount of time. And I think that the audience feels that too. And there's this sort of communion that happens where the audience feels free, but they're present and they're, they're, they're sort of there with you. And, and when you ask me about whether, how I perceive or whether I feel the audience or, or what have you, yeah, like I don't see them and they know that I can't see them, but it sort of puts us, I think, together in this very different way that I think is where a lot of the poetry lies, but not where I expected it to lie. Just one last thing that I'd like to articulate. I think it's really important to note that my work is not about pain and it's never been about pain. I think people look at performance artists who do really extreme gestures and they they think of, you know, or, you know, Marina has to grapple with this all the time, you know, the, the idea that we're masochists or that we're here to push ourselves to extremes. I mean, you know, some people are, but, you know, at least in my work, I think that's a very easy and kind of lazy reading of it, you know. It's much more about using those sort of extreme sensations, whether it is pain or, you know, bliss or, or anything or heartbreak or what have you, just as a point of departure and as a doorway. And, and ultimately it's kind of incidental, you know, I think it's more important to me to think about sort of the result over time of staying with whatever it is that we are in that space staying with and, uh, and just seeing what happens. You know, but it's not about inflicting like anything. And that also kind of speaks, I think, to a question of like accountability and like what is the audience's role of being accountable or or witnessing something. It sort of relegates like the whole gesture into like this space of like horror or or incident, like watching somebody suffer and what is your sort of role in that. It's not about that. And I think that the people who get it and the people who are there hopefully feel that. Um, it's my it's my job to facilitate an environment where they do feel that they feel like it's not just a question of gratuitous violence. I feel very strongly like in my work, I don't want to create more violence than is already in the world. And I think that I come from a generation as well that is very sensitive to and capable of talking about violence and addressing it without perpetuating it or reproducing it.
which is different from the audience, uh, you know, from 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 the the generation before me or or various generations before me. Like Hermann Nietzsche is an example of somebody I'm very inspired by and was inspired by for my last performance. But you know, the Viennese actionists, but the ways in which they, I think, wanted to talk about the violence that they were experiencing, you know, during World War II in Austria, was a very different language and a very different sensibility than what a 22 year old, you know, or 24 year old you know, black queer person is going to produce, you know, uh, because we just have different tools at our disposal. We have different vernacular at our disposal. My work is not about pain or violence. What materials do you use in your sculptures? My sculptures are made of high density urethane, which is a, an inert material that is actually the same material that you would use to make a positive for a mold for a bronze. So they're sort of like, you could say maybe blueprints or prototypes for eventual bronzes. And I make them by creating these 3D meshes out of 3D scans of my performances that I make with a modified 3D scanner, which I've essentially like, in a way, dumbed down by like hacking into the sort of the software of it. It's kind of a method that I use to, you know, create these very automatic glitches in the sort of the reading of the body by not allowing it to correct itself. Like typically a 3D scanner will have a lot of autocorrective capacity. It uh, understands when it's seeing repetition, it understands where it is in space, so it doesn't sort of copy, you know, an arm or a leg or what have you. I've turned all of these faculties off. So it sort of looks like these weird, eroded figures in motion, because I really wanted to find a way to kind of translate the performance practice, this sort of durational practice, right, into something static or something that can last. And my, I, I guess my all-time dream would be to make bronzes. So I'm kind of trying to get there. How demanding, both mentally and physically, is your work? Very. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the short answer. You know, it depends always on the piece, sort of in terms of what we're considering that, you know. But I make work basically out of a, a an investigation of, you know, extreme sensations in the body. I'm thinking of not necessarily pain, but like if you think of an emotional sort of reflex or an outburst or a, just a feeling that you have that typically the body doesn't sustain for more than 10 or 15 minutes, fight or flight, things like that. Like we have our sympathetic and our parasympathetic nervous systems that sort of that play with each other and, and you know, bring us up and bring us back down when we sort of, you know, as is useful to us, right? Um, evolutionarily, it's about energy expenditure or whatever. I really want to almost take a state like that and see what happens when we stretch it out over instead of 10, 15, 30 minutes, seven hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, and sort of see where we go with it. I think it's it's not something that we're, we're used to in our sort of day-to-day -day life, examining the physiological limitations of our of our bodies you know but they're there and and they're sort of i think they're they're fascinating and looking at the body as kind of this this thing that we do have agency over yeah i i just want to sort of push it as far as it can go and 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 see what we get i i don't know <laughs> you know oftentimes until i've made the work but it is it is it is about kind of finding out what's at the, you know, what's what's behind the kind of the, the door of limitation. Are you able to connect with the audience at all? I mean, do you concentrate, focus, or even think of the audience while you're working? 
First and foremost, I can't see them. You know, I tend to wear, I would say always actually, contact lenses that obscure my vision. And that's for two reasons. One is that I find it protects the public. It sort of turns the whole body when you erase the eyes into a form, right? Like it, it kind of takes away our personhood when we can't really see the the pupil or the iris, say that whatever the eyes are the windows to the soul, that's very true. Like we, we, we really, I think, feel the difference when somebody doesn't have a visible eye. It's it kind of, you know, that's why sunglasses are kind of used to obscure one's identity. You know, it's, it's this very ancient, I think, reflex uh, that we have, how we understand a human being. So, you know, when I erase the, the eye or sort of homogenize it or abstract it in any way, people can read my body more as a uh, my body or the bodies of my performers as as more as sculptural material uh, than who they are. So that's one perspective. The other is that you know internally it, it kind of allows you to go inside a lot a lot more uh, sort of easily. The particular white contact lenses that I use, I, I have varying opacities of them, but the you know the most opaque ones. I won't see anything except for what's very, very directly lit, very close to me. So, you know, the audience are sort of these like these blobs, these gray shapes that kind of move around in front of me. But you know, and I think I feel them, but I don't I don't connect with them in the conventional sense at all. No. How did COVID affect you? I think with with work like I do, it would be easy to think, right, that my whole world might stop because performance art, we, we think of it as something that relies on an audience. And it, in a way it does. But I wanted to find as many ways as possible to reinterpret it as a medium into ways that I had access to, I guess, at the time. So how did it affect your sleep patterns? Yeah, every day I was going to bed at around five o'clock in the morning and waking up at around noon, which as it turns out is what comes naturally to me. I didn't really realize that before COVID. I knew that I like to stay up, but you know, my creative sweet spot starts at around 1.30 a.m., like no matter where I am in the world. So to sort of already have the ability to kind of milk that a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I went and I was living at my mom's in Montreal for the first five months. And during that time, I, I didn't have anything on me. I didn't bring much more than three days worth of clothes. So I just, I bought a pack of printer paper and I just sort of started to draw out new ideas. And I created a, essentially a body of work, several bodies of work that I'm still working through to this day. I just sort of would sit down three, four in the morning and just come up with things in, in total silence and like vacancy, you know, uh, my mom would get better and I was really alone, which was really beautiful, you know, despite what was going on in the world. It, it you know, it allowed me that space. Have you ever thought about if you weren't an artist, what other career path you would have chosen? Probably something in the sciences. I'm really obsessed with human anatomy. I love biology. Biology is probably my my favorite thing, even within my art practice. It's it plays a huge role. I've always been kind of a a nerd about the body and how it works. And I I somehow it's just one of those things. You know, we all have that that kind of that special interest, that obsession where you can learn about something in passing a decade ago and like retain it forever. You know, like that's that's me in like high school biology. I still, I could easily ace a high school biology exam like to this day. Yeah, I mean, it, it plays so deeply into my work and how I think about 
sort of the you know and compose with like the body uh is I'm, I'm thinking a lot about its internal functions just as much as its sort of external form so when i'm kind of structuring a performance and how i want people to stand and how i want my sort of performers and myself to to be uh functioning i'm thinking also about the sort of the viscera and the internal organs and sort of the positioning of you know sort of the, the basin and the bones and that that's all very much sort of part of the part of the poetry of it it's very inside out do you listen to music at all while you're thinking through what you're going to do next? I do. So during COVID, I was like obsessively listening to Chopin. I would just put on the Nocturnes over and over and over on repeat. And it was just sort of almost like this Pavlovian like trigger that would just kind of put my brain into the right place. Ravel as well, the Ravel uh, Miroir. Yeah. So I guess a lot of classical for when I'm working, I listen to a lot of Ryuji Sakamoto. And then just like weirder stuff like Alvanoto and and then I, I I work quite closely with you know I've worked a few composers with my own work you know my friend Julian personal Jesus for one yeah music is really important to what I do I and I I've also you know composed some of my own soundtracks as well I know that uh, technology has also has an impact on your work right yeah it does so sort of as I was describing earlier right with the sculptures that's kind of a new element in my work but yeah, I guess when it comes to technology and art, my golden rule is I think that an artwork should always absolutely require the medium and the means by which it is made. I think if people are using technology superfluously uh, in their work, it, it, it reads really poorly. If somebody's making a 3D video or a, or a 360 video or like a VR work that very much should have been just a you know, standard video work or multi-channel video work. I, I you know, I, I don't really believe in that. So, you know, when it comes to questions about like new technologies and my work and and sort of people approaching me about doing AR, VR or, or uh, the like, I think the answer is absolutely. But when I have an idea that needs it, I'm not just going to transform a performance into something it doesn't need to be, or I'm not going to transform a sculpture into something that it shouldn't be, you know. But yeah, I, I, I think it's been really exciting to get better acquainted with like 3D modeling as a way of interpreting the body and a way of creating new forms. Because I never went to school in a formal sense, I feel like I'm still very much in the midst of my education. And I think that's really important to me to uphold. Uh, I think it should be important for all artists to uphold, you know, a, a sense of just being a student, I, I kind of intend to hopefully be that way until my old age. Yeah, I, I it's just continued curiosity and being porous. I, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, also, I just I just feel constantly naive about certain things, you know, or, or maybe not naive is that's maybe not the word, but rather that my my interpretation of things is is more intuitive than academic. So I'm always really, really, really happy to get more information about something, especially as it relates to kind of my practice or or things that have nothing to do with my practice, but that I take inspiration from, you know, like biology or space or, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, I, I don't really understand how, how, how one would like sort of turn off that muscle <laughs> to, to be porous, you know, at least it hasn't happened yet, thankfully. When did the titles of your work enter the creative process? 
Uh, you know, I have struggled a lot with titles in my life. You can ask anybody I've ever worked with, and I will not give them a title until literally they, you know, come actually knocking on my door, asking me, saying like, we need to print the nameplates. <laughs> like, I kind of started with this whole idea of sort of creating my own medical jargon, like hemotherapy and pneumotherapy were sort of, you know, and then the subsequent pieces, which haven't, you know, been made yet, but like myotherapy would be the next one. And then laryngotherapy are, are all just sort of using and appropriating words from medical jargon as interpreting a scene or a purpose. Uh, you know, pneumotherapy was like this, this sort of ritual around exercising like grief from the lungs. And I was really fascinated with like how in like various beliefs and sort of intuitive or shamanistic like sort of spiritual medical crossovers from various cultures they would interpret certain emotions or or intuitions in similar parts of the body like grief is in the lungs in at least like four or five cultures you know which i which i find really fascinating so i was like well how can one exercise grief and and so i created this whole scenario that was really built around grief and the lungs. You know, it was full of flowers and flowers with fragrance. So like hyacinths and lilies, amaranth and and uh, and poppies and magnolias as well. And I wanted people to kind of walk in and have this extremely sensorial experience and kind of feel like after seven hours, whatever was living in my lungs might be, you know, out in the world in some way. And uh, and wanted to also extend that invitation to the audience to kind of meditate on their lungs. So it was sort of like it's sort of I think the titles speak to like a, almost like a desire to create something very technical and procedural, but that's actually totally just like imaginary and surreal, but can actually maybe have an impact. I also like my titular sensei, if you will, like the person that I whose whose titles I admire the most are um, Lynette Yodombaki, who's just an incredible painter, and she has these unbelievable titles that are like lines of poetry unto themselves. I think going forward, I might try to do that as well. I've done it with a couple of them, you know, water in a heat wave or admiration is the furthest thing from understanding were two pieces that I did in 2021. And then the sculptures are all named after figures from various mythologies. And I like to name them like spaceships. So, cause that's sort of how they feel very experimental like probes you know so the sculptures in my last sculpture show first and last recently were narcissus one icarus one and orpheus one and now in the new museum in november i'll be presenting two sculptures what are you excited about right now i mean i'm very excited about the show i'm about to do in amsterdam with the marina bramovich institute and the Carré theater that is going to be running from October 24th through 30th. And basically it's a whole cohort of performance artists, artists from various disciplines doing performance at the at the Carré Theatre to sort of break the boundaries of theatre. Uh, and it's a, it's a show that Marina participating in called No Intermission. So we each sort of have our own durational pieces that'll be lasting through the entire week. So that'll be, that'll be a fun challenge. And I've also never shown in Amsterdam before. And then I'm having very shortly thereafter my first American museum exhibition called A Shadow of Spring at the New Museum. Myself and one other artist, Vivian Kakuri from Brazil, who's this fabulous sound textile artist, you know, and, and also makes these incredible sort of sculptural speaker systems will be taking over the lobby gallery during um, 
you know, the next cycle of exhibitions. So the curator is Bernardo Mosquera, also from Brazil. And uh, we're doing this whole sort of show around the principles of vibration and their effects on the body. And I'm presenting two like massive sculptures <laughs> that'll be uh, actually functioning fountains as well. So I'm really stoked. I've really enjoyed this interview and I've learned quite a bit. So this is going to be my last question. What do you feel is the purpose of art? And as an artist, what is your role? As huge as that question is, <laughs> I think the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, Toni Morrison saying, if you're free, you need to free somebody else. And if you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. I think that, especially in kind of the format that I follow, the sort of the way that bodies and people react to stimuli I think it's it's an artist's job to create conditions under which we can better understand ourselves in the world, you know, very broadly. You know, I try to put my human experience and human experiences into sort of like a petri dish. I feel very scientific about the way that I approach the art making process. And I think that's something that I stay true to because it's the way that I can most effectively access people's minds, bodies, and spirits, you know, thinking of it as a, as a very sort of rigorous and direct practice. I think it's an artist's job to, to make space for people to dream and to feel what's in them. I think it's a question of heightening people's sensitivities to the world and to what's not only important to the artist, but what's important to them. I think that's what I'm trying to do. I think if there's a way for us to connect on the levels of our, our priorities and what we, you know, and our sensations and our sensuality, I think there's a lot that can be done. Well, thank you for what you do because it's, um, it's very challenging. And I appreciate the opportunity to feature you. You're the first artist I've featured whose practice involves so much of uh, your body and your, your mind, your intellect. So th thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.